Authorities in New Mexico are investigating a shooting that killed three people and injured six others, including two police officers. It's Tuesday, May 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, top congressional leaders plan to meet with President Biden today to continue talks on the debt ceiling as a default looms. We only have so many days left. The president decided to wait 100 days before he would negotiate. Also this hour, a new report finds the importance of religion in the lives of Americans is on the decline. I think it's sort of in relation to the larger trends we're seeing among Americans who are becoming increasingly likely to become religiously unaffiliated. And Congress takes a closer look at regulations on artificial intelligence. In sports, Red Sox lose four in a row, sunny, windy, and around 80 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden says he'll meet House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today to resume talks about raising the debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Congress and the White House are running out of time to avert a potential default. Talks at the White House broke off last Tuesday with no sign of a breakthrough. Speaker McCarthy told reporters that he thinks the discussions remain far apart and the other side was not talking anything serious. President Biden, on the other hand, says he's optimistic that a deal can be reached. Republicans are refusing to lift the borrowing limit without massive cuts in government spending, while Democrats have flat out rejected a debt ceiling bill with conditions. NPR's Windsor Johnston reporting. Special counsel John Durham is accusing the FBI of lacking evidence when it launched its investigation into ties between the 2016 Trump campaign and Russia. NPR's Giles Snyder reports on Durham's conclusions following a four-year investigation. Special counsel John Durham has wrapped up his work with a more than 300-page final report, calling the basis of the FBI's investigation seriously flawed, saying that neither U.S. law enforcement nor the intelligence community had any evidence of collusion when the FBI launched the investigation known as Crossfire Hurricane. He's also accusing the FBI of treating the Trump-Russia inquiry differently than other politically sensitive sensitive investigations, saying the Bureau relied on raw, unanalyzed, and uncorroborated intelligence. Over the course of his investigation, Durham did secure a guilty plea, but two other cases resulted in acquittals, and no high-level law enforcement or intelligence official faced charges. Trial Snyder, NPR News. Voters in Kentucky are heading to the polls for a primary election today. One of the closely watched races is for Kentucky governor. As Louisville Public Media's Danielle Kay reports, Republican candidates are campaigning with national GOP figures. Incumbent Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir is expected to easily win the Democratic nomination, but the Republican race isn't as clear-cut. Twelve Republicans are vying for the chance to challenge Bashir in November. Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron and former United Nations Ambassador Kelly Kraft are the presumptive frontrunners. Former President Donald Trump endorsed Cameron and campaigned with him at a rally via telephone on Sunday. Kraft, who's been trailing behind Cameron in recent polls, has been escalating her rhetoric against transgender rights. She campaigned with Texas Senator Ted Cruz on Saturday. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Kay in Louisville. There's a primary election in Pennsylvania, too, today. Residents in Philadelphia will choose mayoral candidates, and there is a race for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Democrats control the Pennsylvania State House by one vote. There is a key special House election in a Philadelphia suburb that could determine whether the Democrats keep that narrow legislative control. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. An uncle of George Floyd is lobbying for new legislation that would give people in police custody the right to emergency medical care. The Medical Civil Rights Act was written by Harvard professor of medicine Dr. Robert George Dooley. Dooley died last year and was honored during a memorial in Boston last week. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtell has more on the proposed legislation. A few days before Dooley's death last year, he reached out to many of the families of those killed in police custody, including George Floyd's uncle, Selwyn Jones. Jones came to Boston to attend Dooley's memorial last week and to lobby for the Medical Civil Rights Act. This act would make it a lot easier for people to know that when they're being encountered by police, that they would not have to be fearful of their life. The bill is currently in committee in the State House. Similar legislation has also been proposed in Connecticut. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. The Healy administration says it plans to support changes to Title IX from President Joe Biden. The changes would keep schools from banning transgender students from planning, playing on sports teams that align with their gender identity. Although in some cases there would be exceptions. Healy tells the Boston Globe the change brings federal law closer to Massachusetts law. Discrimination on the basis of gender identity is prohibited in the state. Trails north of Walden Pond are closed to the public as a brush fire continues to burn in Lynn Woods. Fire officials say the blaze is burning between residential neighborhoods, though it is contained and not threatening any properties. Dry and windy conditions across much of the state are elevating the risk for potential wildfires. The National Weather Service plans to put a red flag warning into effect at 8 this morning. The Boston Symphony Orchestra is appointing a new president and chief executive officer. Chad Smith is currently the chief executive of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Smith says arts organizations have roles to play in the community, and he says the pandemic has changed the way people enjoy the arts, so the symphony must be flexible. There are dozens, perhaps hundreds of audiences for the BSO, and we have to find ways to communicate with them. We have to find ways to reach out. We have to find ways to kind of provide that warm welcome and and make our organizations more porous and more accessible. Smith replaces Gail Samuel, who resigned in December. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Red Sox are coming off their fourth straight loss. They fell to the Seattle Mariners last night 10-1. to The teams play at Fenway again tonight. The Celtics have the night off. They face the Miami Heat tomorrow in the Eastern Conference Finals. Mostly sunny and breezy today. We'll have high temperatures around 80. Tonight, clouds move in, bringing a slight chance of showers. Lows will be in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny again, but much cooler with high temperatures around 60. It's 61 degrees in Boston at 707. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include United Airlines, working to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. United has invested in the future production of more than 5 billion gallons of sustainable aviation fuel. United, Good leads the way.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden plans to meet with congressional leaders today to talk about raising the debt ceiling. The federal government is only about two weeks away from running out of money to pay its bills by a Treasury Department estimate. NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt is here to talk us through all this. Uh, Barbara, this is going to be the second debt ceiling discussion between the president and the Senate and House leaders. So what happened since they met a week ago? White House aides and congressional leadership staff have been meeting to chart out possible courses here before the leaders were to meet again. Staff worked through the weekend on this. But yesterday, Speaker McCarthy told reporters he's not seeing what he sees as sufficient progress. It's very concerning to me. Look, I, I look at the days that it takes to get to the House and to the Senate. You'd have to have something done by this end of this week. And I just don't see the progress happening. That's very different from what the president is saying. Over the weekend, President Biden told reporters he remains optimistic. It's never as good to characterize a negotiation in the middle of a negotiation. I remain optimistic because I'm a congenital optimist. But I really think there's a desire on their part as well as ours to reach agreement. I think we'll be able to do it. So quite a divide here between the two leaders. A source familiar with the discussions who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe these private negotiations said, it's not expected there will be a major breakthrough at today's meeting. Leaders will talk about where staff have found common ground and where they haven't. Now, Republicans passed a debt relief bill last month. How do the proposals in that bill fit into these negotiations? The legislation that House Republicans passed, which rolls back spending levels and limits the growth of federal spending, uh, it would also repeal key provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. That's Biden's signature bill that funds climate, health care, and energy programs. The White House is trying hard to avoid any cuts to that. Top allies of Speaker McCarthy have signaled there are four areas which could serve as a framework for a compromise. Spending caps for federal programs, clawing back roughly $60 billion in unspent COVID-19 funds, permitting reform that would speed up the approval for new energy projects, and adding work requirements for adults without dependents who receive support from safety net programs like food stamps. Now, the source familiar with discussion said there's potential areas for common ground on the unspent COVID aid and permitting reform, but said the president and McCarthy are still very far apart on spending caps, those new work requirements for Medicaid and food assistance, along with revenue raisers like closing loopholes in the tax code. And it's worth noting that Biden is leaving on Wednesday for the G7 in Japan, so he's expected to receive daily updates while he's in Asia. Okay, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, though, has been warning that the U.S. could run out of money as early as June 1st. Does that deadline still hold? It does. She sent a letter to all members of congressional leadership yesterday regarding the debt limit. She reiterated that timeline, saying the X date could come as early as June 1st, and went on to say that concerns about a debt default can raise short-term borrowing costs and negatively impact the U.S. credit rating. That's NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt. Barbara, thanks. Thank you. Another thing lawmakers are focused on today, how to regulate artificial intelligence. After a dinner with members of the House, the CEO of the company behind ChatGPT, Sam Altman, is appearing before a Senate Judiciary panel. We called up Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, who chairs that subcommittee. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So Sam Altman has said he's, quote, a little bit scared of AI and the tech his own company has created with ChatGPT and what it would do to jobs. Does AI scare you? 
AI has some very scary potential consequences, and we've seen some of them already. The powerful spread of disinformation, harassment of women, the voice cloning software that can impersonate and falsely mimic individual voices. But there's also uh, immense promise for new cures for cancers, developing understandings of physics and biology. It has a lot of potential for both good and ill. And one of the nightmares is that it will replace a lot of jobs. Of course, it could create a lot of jobs as well. And what's needed is a framework, some rules of the road and protection, such as we have so far failed to do for social media, which right, also involves Right, I wanted to algorithms. ask you about that. I mean, because there is still a lot of talk about how to regulate social media companies years after it's been a part of daily life. What, with this being an emerging technology, what kind of guardrails do you want to see? I think there is a lot of agreement around a number of needed guidelines for transparency. AI companies ought to be required to test their systems, disclose known risks, and allow independent researcher access. Limitations on use. There are places where AI simply should not be permitted because the risk is so high of disinformation or falsehood and criminal use. And then responsibility and accountability. AI companies and their clients should be held responsible if they cause harm that could be foreseen and perhaps was foreseen. We shouldn't repeat the mistakes of Section 230. Now, you're convening today's hearing with Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, and he said for him right now, the power of AI to influence elections is a huge concern. Do you share that concern? I think there's a lot of potential for bipartisan cooperation here, just as we've done on social media. The bill that Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican in Tennessee, and I have authored with 31 co-sponsors to protect children from toxic content on the internet is bipartisan. I think there's also the potential for that kind of cooperation on AI. In fact, I think there is an absolute need for it because there are such huge consequences for both good and bad. Now, Congress does actually lag behind the European Union when it comes to regulating AI. Has Congress already dropped the ball um, when it comes to even starting the talk now instead of earlier? There is a need for presidential leadership here, no question mm -hmm. about it, because there are international implications. For example, we are potentially involved in an AI race with China. There are issues of national security. As a member of the Armed Services Committee, I worry a lot about the question of whether our military is moving quickly enough to adopt AI and its potential. So I think that uh, the president has to be a part of it, and he has, in fact, proposed an AI Bill of Rights. Uh, Senator Schumer has suggested a framework, and I think there will be a lot of cooperation here, both bipartisan and among the branches of government. Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut. Just to be clear, ChatGPT did not write my questions for you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. There's been a lot of talk about the possibility that the end of pandemic-era border restrictions, known as Title 42, might lead to a big influx in migrants at the southern border. But 
That has not come to pass. And some people living in border towns say they don't appreciate the hype. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. The day before Title 42 expired, Brenda Gomez was walking around downtown Brownsville. Gomez says she loves living here. She says because it's on the border, the city is a mix of Mexican and American cultures. I grew up in Mexican culture, so I feel I'm at home every time I travel outside of the valley. I like it, but it just feels home whenever you come back here. So I like the culture, I like the people. Brownsville is one of the southernmost cities in the U.S., right on the border between Texas and Mexico. Often these cities get media attention when something happens with U.S. immigration policy. Gomez says crossing back and forth between the two countries is just part of life here. I travel to Mexico a lot. So I, every time I go into Mexico and then I come back and I see people wanting to cross over or just uh, people being held there for so long, it has its pros and its cons. On the one hand, Gomez says, she's okay with people coming to the U.S. in search of a better life. But, she says, people already living in these border towns need help, too. Danny Marrero, he is with a group called Lupe, which is a generations-old community organizing group that works in the Rio Grande Valley. Immigration is something that is important for the families that are already here and the families that are arriving. But I think what we hear most is, for example, access to good-paying jobs, uh, our infrastructure. They say recent thunderstorms, which were relatively mild, caused school closures and widespread flooding due to poor drainage in border communities. Marerohi says basic public resources like roads, water and electricity are top of mind and immigration is just in the mix. I think where we get dismayed is when we hear like the state or national conversation or the way Governor Abbott or at times even President Biden talks about the border. It just doesn't feel like they're ever talking directly to us. And the way the media and politicians talk about border towns and immigration is perhaps the biggest frustration. Rudy Flores works downtown near a border crossing. He says a lot of what he hears in the media doesn't really line up with his experience. They're making it seem worse than it is. It's just calm. They're just trying to get somewhere, and I don't mind it, honestly. He says he's lived in Chicago and Colorado, and he's happy to be back in Brownsville. On the day after Title 42 expired, Flora says it was barely noticeable that anything had changed here. For me, nothing has changed, even though I work downtown. It's just a little bit more traffic, foot traffic, but other than that, it's normal to me. In fact, federal officials say border crossings are actually down since the Trump era policy expired. Danny Marrerohi with Lupez says the expectations are almost always wrong when there is news on the border. And this time is no different. It's not at all the picture that I think people want to portray. It's much more like families and individuals among the most vulnerable in the world trying to find shoelaces, deodorant, and a way to reunite with their families here. Even though the media spotlight shows border towns like Brownsville as ground zero for the national immigration debate, Marrero says life goes on for the people who live here. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, Brownsville, Texas. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in three minutes on Morning Edition, NPR producers announce this year's winners of the annual Tiny Desk Concert. It's 719. 
I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five, and liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering. Farm-to-plate Caribbean-American meals made with fresh, locally sourced ingredients. Freshfoodgeneration.com. Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Mostly sunny and a high near 80 today. Tonight, mostly cloudy and a low around 48. There's a slight chance of showers overnight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a lot cooler with a high temperature around 60. It looks like it'll stay in the 60s for the rest of the week. Right now, it's 61 degrees in Boston at 720. And as you're listening to WBUR this morning, keep in mind, we also offer a quick read of all the news that matters in Boston and beyond in your email inbox. Subscribe to WBUR today at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from HintWater.com. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Since 2008, our tiny desk colleagues have introduced us to thousands of talented music artists. One of those artists, Baby Rose, was featured by the tiny desk a couple of times, most recently from her home during the early months of the pandemic. There's so many things I've got to say, but I'll show you. So many words getting Her music was featured in the hit HBO series Insecure, and this year she's one of the judges of NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. The contest is in its ninth year. Tiny Desk Concert Series producer Bobby Carter is also a judge. Both Baby Rose and Bobby Carter are here with a big reveal this morning. Hello, you two. Good morning. Good morning. All right, Bobby, let's start with you. Tell us about this year's entries to the Tiny Desk Contest. I'll say this for all of the years that I've been a judge, this is by far my favorite year in terms of the wide array of voices and talent and perspectives and just the level of musicianship. This was a great, great year. So Baby Rose, I mean, how tough of a decision was this? There were so many amazing artists that submitted from a wide array of areas, like as far as genre wise and like Material-wise, subject-wise, it was very incredible to be able to, you know, 
sit on that end and listen to people pour out their stories and their and their hearts and yeah. It sounds like you both are relieved that it's over in a way, right? I mean, it's like it's like it's, mean, it's such a hard decision. <laughs> it wasn't easy. I'm not gonna lie. It was not easy, but it was fun to do, though. Yeah, but and and it's a lot of pressure because you you just want to mm. get it right. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know how important this is for an artist getting exposed and you know perhaps winning this thing. And we just more than anything, we want to get it right because you know this thing can change lives. So, okay, without further ado, Bobby, who is the, the winner this year? That's right. Break it out. The artist, the band is Little Moon, and their song is Wonder Eye, the winner of this year's Tiny Desk Contest. Count up on fingers all my days to the minute. So, Bobby, I mean, first off, it's it's tough, right? When when it comes yeah. to art, to name a winner, right? But I mean, yeah. so so, what? Where do they draw inspiration from? What put them over the over the top? Well, when we go into this thing, one of the things I, I, that I look for, especially, is something that I've never seen or heard, just personally, and then in in the contest. And this video, this song, it starts and it feels very familiar for the for about the first thirty seconds to a minute. And then at about the one minute mark, the music just, it almost grabs you by the collar and yanks you in and like, check this out. And it just, it's like a gut punch in the best way. And then just when you're into that and you're woozy, it, you know, it goes up another notch with uh, Emma goes up into her falsetto. It, it shook me. It, it, it was it was so impactful, and it's a song that you just can't get out of your head. And the performance is just top top notch. And you mentioned Emma Emma Hardyman, guitar and vocals for yeah. the band Little Moon. Baby Rose, I mean, what struck you the most about Little Moon? I just was taken aback by how ethereal they were. The whole approach, I could just feel her releasing something. The wall of sound that they had with all of the instruments. And the production value was just beautiful. And yeah, her voice was captivating, yeah. like all around. I think that when we all listened together, when it was the final stretch, it was just a unanimous decision from that point. Yeah, we were in the room and after we listened to the song, it was just silence for about 10 seconds. We were all looking at each other like, mm -hmm. did you did you feel what I felt? And there were quite a few top contenders this year, but... Sure. That's the one that really silenced the room and, and sort of made it pretty undeniable. The backstory behind uh, Wonder Eye is that Emma and her husband Nathan, who's in the band, he plays bass, they were in the mm -hmm. process of leaving the Mormon church. And, yeah. and the church is somewhere they'd grown up with. So it yeah. was a, you know, that's a big transition for anyone. It's very heavy. It's also about transitioning from this life to the next, as uh, I believe her mother in law was in hospice care. So that story just made the performance make even more sense. And Baby Rose, as an artist, when you can put your own life and, and the things that you're going through into your art, I mean, how much more impactful does that make uh, a piece of art? I mean, you feel it. It hits different. It feels like an offering versus just a song to sing. 
And I think that's what we got from Little Moon. And good on them. Like, this is their fourth entry. And so the consistency and, and them still going for it. And I'm just really happy that they're getting this opportunity. So, Bobby, then what does the winner have in store for them now? Oh, boy. Well, first off, they're going to be coming here to Washington, D.C. to play behind the real Tiny Desk very soon. And then they're going to go on tour on the Tiny Desk Contest Tour later on this summer. And uh, sky's the limit. I hope this really makes a difference for them and their careers. And I believe they will. I believe that fans and people who watch Tiny Desk, they're in for a real, real treat. And I just I have the highest of expectations for this band. I love Little Moon. That's NPR's Bobby Carter and musician Baby Rose. The winner of this year's Tiny Desk concert is Little Moon and their song Wonder Eye. And you can hear them this afternoon on NPR's All Things Considered. Bobby, Baby Rose, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Count up on fingers all my days to the minute. Mm. Support for NPR and the Tiny Desk Contest comes from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. Capital One, what's in your wallet? And from Guayaquil, maker of Yerba Mate, who believe community comes to life and connections are made through music. Guayaquil, come to life. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, as a new survey shows that fewer Americans are participating in organized religions, we look at the role religion is playing in American politics. It's 729. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering tomorrow night at WBUR City Space for a panel conversation on how to approach anxiety productively. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Senior Medicare Patrol. Detect, protect, and report healthcare errors, fraud, and abuse. Be an engaged healthcare consumer. If you suspect fraud, visit MedicareOutreach.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Top House and Senate lawmakers are expected at the White House this afternoon for more talks with President Biden on raising the debt ceiling. It's the second such White House meeting in a week. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the sides remain far apart on an agreement to prevent a default, despite several days of discussions at the staff level. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said the U.S. could default on its debts as early as June 1st without action by Congress. Regulations on artificial intelligence will be the focus today when the CEO of the company behind ChatGPT testifies to a Senate panel. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. Sam Altman heads OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, the generative AI tool that made a splash when it was released late last year. It can create convincing prose, art, and software code and has led other tech companies to introduce rivals. AI is a fast-moving technology, and lawmakers are seeking information about it as they try to get their arms around how to regulate it. Altman's appearance before the Senate panel on privacy and technology is his first before Congress. The subcommittee's chairman, Connecticut Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal calls AI uncharted territory. And in a statement, he said AI needs rules and safeguards that address its promise and pitfalls. 
Trial Snyder, NPR News. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new report finds that Boston Public Schools improperly handled invoices and wasted nearly $25,000. The report from the Boston Finance Commission shows BPS did not directly pay a vendor over $150,000. That was for plumbing work performed since 2018. Instead, the district hired a second vendor to pay the bill, who then charged the district a $25,000 fee for the service. The district superintendent is calling for an outside auditor to investigate all payment processes as a result of the report. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office says it's investigating a Boston police unit dedicated to disrupting gang activity in the city. The Boston Globe reports the AG's office is investigating allegations of racial profiling by the unit. Critics say the gang unit unfairly targets young black and Hispanic men in the city. Boston police say they're cooperating with the investigation. Transgender people in the state could soon be able to change their name and gender on marriage licenses. A new bill proposed by State Senator Barry Feingold would add marriage licenses to a list of amendable documents. WBUR's Jacob Garcia has more. Right now, trans people can update their birth certificates, driver's licenses, social security cards, and other vital records. But a decades-old Department of Public Health regulation excludes marriage licenses from being amended. Mass Equality's executive director, Tanya Neslison, says the new bill would make life easier for trans people. It's one of those situations where you, you don't fully understand the impact until you are in a situation where you need your marriage license for something and your marriage license doesn't reflect your name or proper gender identity. She says the bill explicitly helps trans individuals that have undergone medical intervention. It's important to note that not all trans people have. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jacob Garcia. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. It was another Tough loss last night for the Red Sox. They fell to the Mariners at home by nine runs. Game two of the series is tonight. The Celtics have one more night off before they take on the Miami Heat. The first game of the Eastern Conference Finals is tomorrow. We'll have a mostly sunny day near 80 today. Tonight it falls to the upper 40s and there's a chance of showers overnight. Tomorrow, low 60s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. At 734, you're with WBWAR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The importance of religion in the lives of Americans is on the decline, but for those who do still go to a house of worship, they say they're optimistic about the future. Now, those are among the findings of a new report from the Public Religion Research Institute. NPR's Jason DeRose has more. 
Just 16% of Americans say religion is the most important thing in their lives, according to the PRRI study. But the picture looks different once broken down by demographic. 38% of black Protestants and 42% of white evangelical Protestants say religion is most important. Melissa Deckman is CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute. I'm not surprised that we're seeing religious salience to be highest among those groups, um, but certainly it's less than 50%, and I think that's a change from perhaps earlier uh, decades of, of findings. The research also shows Black Protestants are the only Christian group in which a majority, 63%, believe that congregations should get involved in social issues, even if doing so means having difficult conversations. Deckman says that's likely due to the historic connection between Black churches and the civil rights movement. In the last couple of years, of course, concerns about racial justice, having these larger, broader conversations about this and wake up Black Lives Matters. I think it's happening in a lot of Black churches as well. And so I think Black churches are more open to having these conversations in their pews. The report, titled Religion and Congregations in a Time of Social Upheaval, surveyed more than 6,600 adults from all 50 states. Another interesting finding is that religious Americans are on the move. Nearly a quarter of respondents say they previously followed a different faith tradition than the one they practice now, mostly leaving Christianity or religion altogether. Despite the downward trends in overall church attendance, PRRI found that those still going are happy. 82% say they're optimistic about the future of their church. Jason DeRose, NPR News. Joining me now to dive deeper into the findings of this research and what it says about faith in America is Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas. She's dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program, Reverend. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I want to start with why you think so many Americans are leaving the church. Yeah, well, what we see, first of all, is that there's not, since the last survey, a notable or a significant decline mm. uh, in terms of those who identify as religion, religious. Uh, but I think what you find is that Americans in general, as this survey reflects, are less trusting of institutions. And so you see this difference between those who claim to be religious or spiritual as uh, they will uh, denote, and those who say they're spiritual and those who are religious, and those who are leaving the church are less trusting of institutions. Why do you think that's happening? I mean, also this survey found really ideological differences that break down along partisan lines in some cases, and in mm -hmm. some cases by race. For example, the vast majority of Republicans and the vast majority of white churchgoers, according to this research, say they believe America's in danger of losing its, quote, culture and identity, while fewer than half of Democrats think that. When you hear that, what do you think? Yeah, you know, as you dig deeper into the survey, what we're seeing is the kind of partisanship or divisions, if you will, that we're seeing in the country in general that in large measure break down along racial and party lines. And so we're, of course, seeing that in the church as well. And so that you will see, for instance, particularly 
this difference with white evangelical Protestants. And because white evangelical Protestants reflect uh, the base of the Republican Party, then of course you're going to begin, you see this in terms of their religious associations. Uh, and so that partisan divide, if you will, mm -hmm. that you're seeing in the church is reflective of what's going on in the country in general. Now, the church is also still a very segregated place, despite yes. how diverse the country has become. Why? Well, you know, people who uh, have the same life experiences uh, mm -hmm. are people who tend to worship together. And so in as much as black Americans, for instance, and white Americans or people of color and white Americans have different life experiences, then they will, you won't see them worshiping together because they expect the same things out of, out of worship. And so uh, in the same kind of worship experience, and what we do know in a companion survey is that not only do white Americans and Americans of color, particularly black Americans, have uh, different life experiences, if you will, mm -hmm. but we also know that uh, they generally uh, are not integrated in terms of their friend group or the people that they socialize with the most, particularly True. with white Americans who 90% of their friend group are other white Americans. And so it, it would be unusual if uh, those two things didn't also play out in terms of church attendance and who they worship with. You you talked about how the church really reflects the society at large and the partisan divides in this country. Should faith leaders be trying to sort of heal that divide in this moment? Well, I think if we're going to see particular changes in the country and the political divide, et cetera, that our churches and church leaders will have to become more engaged and sort of uh, changing that, yes, healing that, but really transforming what we have to see is not so much uh, the concern for healing the divide. What we have to see is a concern for healing the in inequality in our country, right? Mm -hmm. And so what church leaders have to, I think, be more engaged in are these social justice issues where people are indeed experiencing such radical uh, differences in terms of the way in which they experience life. And so they should be concerned about issues such as poverty, concerned about issues uh, such as racism, et cetera. If we begin to address that, then we can begin to uh, address the divide. The Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas is the Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Thank you so much for your insights on this. Thank you. This is NPR News.
Welcome to Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up at 7.45 on Morning Edition, a new study reveals where and how long ago butterflies originated on Earth. Mostly clear skies today and temperatures rise to near 80 degrees. Upper 40s tonight and some clouds move in overnight. There's a chance of showers. Tomorrow, mostly clear skies again, but much cooler with temperatures only around 60. It's 62 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. Massachusetts casinos and sports betting apps raked in nearly $160 million in revenue last month. New figures from state gaming regulators show the Commonwealth brought in over $21 million in taxes from legalized sports betting. That's since the state began allowing sports betting earlier this year. The Massachusetts Medical Society has a new president. Dr. Barbara Spivak will be the group's 141st president. Spivak has been with the Mass Medical Society since 2001. A Portuguese restaurant in Cambridge that's been open for 40 years is now closed. Portugalese closed earlier this month. The owners have not said why they closed the restaurant. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. Where do butterflies come from? A sweeping new study gives us an answer. Here's science reporter Ari Daniel. Akito Kawahara remembers the moment his butterfly collection began. He was eight years old, standing beside his dad in a neighborhood in Tokyo. And this unusual brown butterfly sort of lands near the road. I was like, oh my gosh, I've read about these things, but I've never caught one. So my hands were trembling. I had my butterfly net in my hand. I ran up to it and I caught it. Kawahara split his childhood between Tokyo and New York, where later that same year, his dad secured a special tour of the insect collection at the American Museum of Natural History. There was this picture of this family tree of butterflies. I remember there was a couple of question marks in different places, just looking at it, realizing that scientists at these museums still don't know these basic things. I'll never forget that day. 
Kawahara went on to become the curator of butterflies and moths at the University of Florida, and those questions of where butterflies first emerged, how they evolved and spread across the world, have only grown in importance to him. There's a lot of butterflies right now that are threatened, and understanding how these butterflies are related to each other it serves as a framework to help us conserve them and conserve the flowers and plants that rely on butterfly pollination. So to piece together that family tree, Kawahara worked with close to 90 colleagues from six continents to collect DNA from all kinds of butterflies. I felt like I was a kid all, all over again. He nabbed a yellow sulfur butterfly right outside his office in Florida, but he went way farther than that. The Andes, the Amazon rainforest, the dry savannas of Mozambique, back to Tokyo. All he and his team needed was a tiny portion of one of each butterfly's six legs. So it's not harmful, and oftentimes we can release the butterfly and the butterfly's still okay. The bulk of the butterflies they studied were pinned specimens in museum collections. All told, they analyzed the DNA from 92% of all butterfly groups, which allowed them to zero in on where butterflies began some hundred million years ago. People had thought that butterflies originated somewhere in Asia, but we were surprised to find out this likely North or Central America dispersing in waves across Asia, Australia, India, Africa, and finally Europe, forming the kaleidoscope of 19,000 butterfly species we know today. This work's published in the journal Nature Ecology and Evolution. Adriana Briscoe, an evolutionary biologist at UC Irvine who wasn't involved in the research, says it'll be worth analyzing the few remaining groups of butterflies. These missing groups might help pinpoint exactly where in the Americas butterflies originated. She has another reason for being excited about these findings. Butterflies were sacred to the ancient people of Mesoamerica. They were thought to be the souls of ancestors. For Akito Kawahara, the ancestor whose front of mind is his dad, of course, who he told about this project right as it was beginning in 2014. He told me, that's wonderful, and he wished me luck. That was the last time they spoke. He died two days later. Kawahara says one way he remembers his dad is through his butterfly collection, which now has 20,000 specimens. It's kind of like your diary. It's really touching. Each butterfly is a memory for Kawahara, a moment in time, where he can stand beside his dad once again. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. This is NPR News. You're starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in just a couple of minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from the author of a new biography of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. that draws from recently released government documents and other newly available material. And at 810, a special counsel's report concludes that the FBI shouldn't have launched an investigation into the connections between Donald Trump's campaign and Russia. It's 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, working with New England artisans dedicated to using sustainable materials to craft furniture that lasts. Locations at circlefurniture.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Yellowstone National Park's iconic bison herds. The buffalo, when they start following their migration pattern, their natural instinct is to come out of Yellowstone 
They don't understand these borders that we've created for them, that the government's created for them. When they leave the park, they're not protected. So this year, more than 1,500 out-of-bounds bison were quarantined, hunted, or sent to slaughter. Learn more on Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Biden and congressional leaders plan to meet today to discuss the debt ceiling with a potential default only a few weeks away. Ukraine successfully shot down 18 missiles launched at Kyiv by Russian forces earlier this morning in what officials are calling an exceptional attack. And a fire weather watch will go into effect at 8 a.m. in just a few minutes here for our region due to warm and windy weather, increasing the likelihood of brush and wildfires. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. Near 80 and mostly sunny today, upper 40s tonight, and it grows mostly cloudy with a chance of showers overnight. Tomorrow, temperatures dip to around 60, and it'll be mostly sunny. It's 62 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The life of Martin Luther King is one of the most famous in American history. But in that life, one thing is easy to overlook. How young he was. King became a nationally known civil rights leader in his mid-twenties. When he gave the famous I Have a Dream speech in Washington in 1963, he was in his early thirties, though his voice suggested the gravity of long experience. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history. We know that cadence, the drawn-out words, precisely pronounced, the pauses between each phrase. The biographer Jonathan Eig found a recording of a voice with a similar cadence, one that King grew up hearing. It's an oral history of his father, Martin Luther King, Sr. When I was born in the midst of of segregation at its height. And I was able to see many injustices leveled upon my people. Jonathan Eig spends a lot of time on Martin Luther King Jr.'s youth in his biography, King, A Life. We learn that King's father grew up with a different name, Michael King, and adopted the name that his son later made famous. It was part of the father's self-invention after growing up as a sharecropper's son. He's working on a farm. His father and mother are stuck in poverty, unable to escape the white landowner in Stockbridge, Georgia. And Martin Luther King Sr. at age 12 walks barefoot out of Stockbridge toward Atlanta to make himself a new life and begins teaching himself to read and write, setting the groundwork to become a preacher, to become an activist, and to raise one of the greatest activists in American history. What did it mean that Martin Luther King Jr., unlike his father, was able to grow up in relative prosperity in a prosperous part of Black Atlanta? One of Dr. King's friends told me that he thought Martin Luther King's was really exceptional in that he did not seem to be bruised by racism in quite the same way that so many of his peers were. He had a little bit of a buffer growing up on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, growing up in this preacher's family. You know, he had a bicycle, he had a pet, he had a dog. He lived in relative comfort. And because his family was so prominent, he 
was able to see a lot more opportunity than, than maybe some other people who were going to school with him had at that time. What were some aspects of the father's character that deeply affected the son? Well, he was a very difficult man. He was very stubborn. He was violent at times. He, you know, he used the belt to spank his children in public, sometimes out in the yard. And if one of the neighbors came by and, and yelled, he'd spank that kid too. So he was a difficult man who set very high standards for all three kids. And he also really was overly protective. And, and when Martin Luther King Jr. became the leader of the Montgomery bus boycott and his home was bombed, Martin Luther King Sr. was there the next day saying, you're coming home with me. I'm not letting you stay here in this kind of risk your life in this danger. Mm. And uh, it was very difficult for Martin Luther King Jr. to stand up to his father. He struggled with that all his life. Is that something that affected his approach to people later on? It really did. One of the interesting things about King is that he's a protest leader who really does not like conflict. He is always going out of his way to avoid conflict with people who are his elders, for, who seem to be his superiors in some ways, people like uh, Roy Wilkins at the NAACP or A. Philip Randolph. And then that plays out, too, when he becomes um, a negotiator with presidents. And he really um, doesn't like conflict. He has to push himself, really, out of his comfort zone to to argue, to debate, to really challenge some of the leaders of this country. I'm amazed at the amount of education this young man sought at such a young age, given that his father had had virtually none. Right. He skipped grades and went to Morehouse, you know, two, three years younger than most of his classmates, then went to seminary and went to um, get his doctorate at Boston University, always the youngest in his class. And his father really was against it. His father thought to be a preacher, you don't need all that education. Morehouse was enough, Daddy King thought. But Martin always wanted to exceed his father. He wasn't comfortable with the way his father preached. He didn't like the emotionalism. He didn't like that country-style preaching. And young Martin Luther King Jr. wanted to show that he could go beyond, just like most of us want to go beyond our, you know, our parents. We want to see what, you know, how far we can go beyond what they've established for us, right? How did King Jr. emerge as the leader of the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955? This is one of the miraculous moments in American history where the right person happens to be in the right place at the right time. And Martin Luther King Jr. was not looking to become a leader. He was looking to get his church um, in shape and perhaps move on to a, a bigger church or to a job as a, as a college professor. But when the Montgomery bus boycott began, they were looking for somebody who could serve as the spokesman. He wasn't even asked to become the, the president yet. He was just asked to be the, the spokesman because he hadn't been around long enough to make enemies. So people thought he might be able to unite the community and they already knew that he was a terrific speaker. So King steps up to the podium at Holt Street Baptist Church on December 5th, 1955 and, and gives this incredible speech. And it's the first time that most people in Montgomery have heard him. And suddenly he inspires them in a way that is just profound. They, they're ready to, to walk they're ready to march. They're ready to, to do it as long as required. If we are nine, the Supreme Court of this nation is land. If we are nine, the Constitution of the United States is land. I'm just thinking of the pressure this person then faced in the years that followed. Seen as the representative, in some ways, of an entire race, under FBI investigation, under threat, under violent threat, repeatedly arrested, finally assassinated. What, if anything, in his youth prepared him to withstand that pressure? The Bible. I'd have to say it was his faith in God. Um, and he said it over and over again, that um, 
God called on him to do this. They called on all of us to live up to the words of, of the teachings of in the Bible that we're here to serve God. We're here to try to make the world a better place, and it's not about ourselves. And um, that's not to say he didn't feel the pressure. He was hospitalized for depression numerous times, and he suffered. He, he knew that his own government was out to destroy him. They were tapping his phones. They were uh, listening to his conversations in hotel rooms. He still did the work, and he still doubled down. He never backed off of, of his convictions. He, he stuck to what he believed in and was willing to risk everything for it. Jonathan Eich is the author of the new biography, King, A Life. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Police in New Mexico say the 18-year-old who fatally shot three people and wounded six others used an AR-style rifle and may have fired randomly. It's Tuesday, May 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new report says the FBI didn't have enough evidence to launch a full investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. Also this hour, allegations against a Boston chef are sparking a bigger conversation about work culture in restaurants. Shouldn't we also ask, what are their ethics? Are people in this restaurant happy? And... AI or automated decision-making technologies are advancing at breakneck speed, yet the regulations are not keeping pace. Congress is under pressure to create safeguards for artificial intelligence. In sports, Red Sox lose four in a row, mostly sunny and near 80 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden will be meeting with congressional leaders this afternoon at the White House. They'll talk about raising the debt ceiling. NPR's Asma Khalid reports this will be the second such meeting at the White House in a week, aimed at reaching an agreement to avoid a default. The White House and Republicans have been at a standoff over raising the debt ceiling. Republicans have been demanding major spending cuts. The White House says the obligations to pay down existing debt is a separate issue from the budget. A source familiar with the discussions says potential areas of common ground could include things like permitting reform. But the two sides remain far apart on other issues, such as new work requirements for Medicaid and food assistance. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen issued a letter yesterday reiterating the urgent need for Congress to raise the debt ceiling, or the government could default on its debt as early as June 1st. Asma Khalid, NPR News. There's a primary election today in Pennsylvania. Democrats have control of the state house by one vote, and they'll learn today if they will keep it after the results come in from a special house election. Meanwhile, voters in Philadelphia are choosing candidates for their mayoral primary election. 
From member station WHYY, Corey Sharber has more on the neck-and-neck neck race. Registered Democrats in Philly outnumber Republicans 7-1, to one, so today's Democratic primary winner is expected to earn the city's top spot. The candidates include former city council members, a former city controller, a state representative, and a grocery store magnate. Philadelphia's next mayor could also be the first woman to hold the position, with the three female candidates leading in the latest polls. Just 27% of registered voters cast a ballot last time there was a competitive mayoral primary. If that happens, the winner could be decided by as few as 2,000 votes. For NPR News, I'm Corey Sharber in Philadelphia. Ukraine says it shot down six of Russia's most advanced missiles during overnight bombing. The attack was described as exceptional in its density. Russian President Vladimir Putin had called the Kinjal missiles unstoppable. Ukraine's military says that its air force has achieved an unbelievable success. The BBC's Hugo Pachega reports the timing of the attack is significant. These latest attacks happened just hours after President Zelensky finished this European tour. He received the promise that billions of dollars of military aid would be provided to Ukraine. And uh, this happens as Ukraine says it's finishing plans for a much anticipated counteroffensive against Russian forces. And many believe that these attacks are likely to not only continue but perhaps intensify because this could be the way Russia is planning to respond. The BBC's Hugo Bachega reporting. It's NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A red flag warning is now in effect because of a high risk of brush fires across most of Massachusetts and southern New England. That's prompted by dry weather and wind in the forecast. The warning will be upgraded to a fire weather watch starting tomorrow morning. Fire officials say potential fires could be fueled by vegetation that died off during last year's drought. Those watches and warnings do not affect Cape Cod, the islands, and parts of coastal Rhode Island and Connecticut. Brockton Public Schools says it will eliminate 130 union positions because of declining student enrollment. The district notified impacted staff this week. More non-union employees are set to be laid off as well. School officials say more than 1,300 students left the district since 2020. The district also faces an $18 million deficit. Two candidates will face off in a special election in Salem today. They're vying to become the city's next mayor after Kim Driscoll left the post to become the lieutenant governor. WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports. Both Dominic Pangallo and Neil Harrington are longtime Salem residents. Pangallo served as Driscoll's chief of staff. I'm proud of the work that we've done so far and the foundation that we've created. Uh, and I think it's a great place to build from. So I'm excited about the work that's ahead. Harrington previously served as mayor. He's currently Salisbury's town manager. I believe I can hit the ground running as a person with the most extensive municipal management experience in the race. Both candidates say they'll make housing and schools top priorities. Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. People in Massachusetts will no longer receive a notification on their smartphones if they've been exposed to someone with COVID-19. The Mass Notify service wrapped up alongside the end of the public health emergency last week. The Bluetooth-based opt-in system had been in place since June 2021. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics, BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. The Red Sox were defeated 10-1 to yesterday by the Seattle Mariners. They'll try to avoid their fifth straight loss tonight. The Celtics are off tonight. They'll return to the Garden tomorrow to face the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. Mostly sunny and breezy today. We'll have high temperatures around 80. Tonight, clouds move in, bringing a slight chance of showers. Lows will be in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny again, but much cooler with high temperatures around 60. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston at 807. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Southern California, where some are honoring the life of a major Latina leader who broke barriers in Los Angeles and beyond. We're going to tell you more about her in just a few minutes. But first, the FBI back in 2016 launched an investigation into alleged contact between Donald Trump's presidential campaign and Russia. Special counsel Robert Mueller eventually took on the case. And yesterday, a special counsel released a report saying the bureau didn't have enough evidence to open the investigation it dubbed Crossfire Hurricane. NPR's Deepa Shivaram joins us now to explain how we got here. Deepa, good morning. Hey, good morning. Okay, so let's start with the original FBI investigation. What prompted that, and how did we get to this special counsel report that was released? Yeah, so the original investigation, like you said, started in 2016, just months before the presidential election took place. So it's already a politically charged time. And the FBI launched their full investigation into Trump and whether his campaign had relations with Russia. And I say full investigation because there are differences in the kinds of investigations the FBI can launch. A full investigation requires a higher level of intelligence and scrutiny before it can move forward. But in this case, the FBI didn't wait for that. And that's where this investigation that was released yesterday comes in. This one was started at a time when Republicans had been blasting the FBI and DOJ for bias. In 2020, then Attorney General Bill Barr named John Durham to be the special counsel, basically investigating the investigation. The Durham report that came out yesterday says the FBI just jumped straight into investigating Trump without enough analysis or intelligence. And because they launched a full investigation, they were allowed to use higher levels of surveillance. This report is really critical of the FBI and says they didn't follow the rules for what investigations that involve foreign influence in elections should look like. And they said the FBI did not, quote, uphold their important mission of strict fidelity to the law. The start of these investigations, both at politically charged times in 2016, then 2020, how are Trump and other Republicans responding to this report? And what do Democrats have to say? Trump has responded already on his social media platform, Truth Social. He called the investigation into his campaign the crime of the century and the Democratic hoax and demanded that Congress do something about it. And he connected it to his lies about how the 2020 election was rigged, saying the FBI investigation was equivalent to stuffing ballot boxes, which, to be clear, there is no evidence of. 
And then he connected it to the other investigations into him that are going on right now, like the one about the classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago and the ongoing cases in Atlanta and New York. So all of that to say, we're already seeing how this report is going to be used by candidate Trump in the 2024 campaign. And we might see this play out on the Hill too. Republican Jim Jordan, who's chair of the House Judiciary Committee, tweeted yesterday and said they want Durham to come testify on Capitol Hill. This investigation was really critical of the FBI's handling of all of this. Has the agency made changes? They have made some changes. They responded to the report with the statement saying that they've already taken dozens of corrective actions to flesh out their process, and those have already been in place. They said that if the reforms they have now had been in place in 2016, the, quote, missteps in the report could have been prevented. And one of those changes, for example, is reforming the way they go about getting FISA warrants, which is essentially what is needed to wiretap someone. And they've changed the guidelines for how they go about conducting sensitive investigations and updated their training. NPR's Deepa Shivaram, thank you. Thank you. Turkish voters will be headed to the polls again this month. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan led in Sunday's election but failed to win an outright majority. He'll face off with rival Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu in a runoff election on May 28th. Now, it's a pivotal contest that's being watched around the world. Joining us now to talk about what's at stake is Albert Josh Kuhn. He's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a retired Turkish diplomat. Uh, Albert, despite polls suggesting that Erdogan was lagging, preliminary results from Sunday's vote show that he came out 5% ahead. So what do you think uh, makes up for that? Yes, that caught everyone off guard because most pollsters were expecting Kılıçdaroğlu to fare much better than this. Erdogan seems to have been able to tap into the public sentiments better than the opposition had. And, you know, he's a, he's a, has a very strong record of political success and he's achieved another one in this election. Is it because possibly his 20 years there? I mean, could that have had anything to do with it? Well, it wasn't a level playing field, obviously, because he had the full force of the state behind him. He has more than 90% of media coverage focusing on his words. So he he, con- he controlled the uh, information domain very significantly, and he was able to put his narrative out there. What's at stake for Turkey in this election? A lot is at stake, not only for Turkey, but also for beyond. You know, Erdogan came to power 20 years ago. He was seen as an inspiration both within and outside of Turkey as a reformer. He was advocating democratic reforms. He was advocating Turkey to join the European Union. He was really a source of inspiration in a country that is predominantly Muslim, NATO member, Western-leaning. But his trajectory changed over time, and he is no longer seen very much as a like-minded person among Turkey's Western allies. There's been democratic backsliding. There's been misconduct in many ways. And we've seen in the latest earthquakes how the functioning of the government and its efficiency is really uh, lackluster because the the reaction of government agencies and the government itself uh, in the relief efforts during the earthquakes showed that there was a lot of problems in the centralized form of government that Erdogan has advocated in the executive presidential system that he transitioned Turkey to. So depending on who wins, what would be at stake for the U.S.? Well, Turkey's foreign policy trajectory obviously will determine on who is the president in this system. It really is the office of the president that makes the calls. Erdogan, as I said, you know, initially, um, he's had a good relationship and good standing, including with the U.S., but with a changing trajectory and more disruptive actions on his part. I think, though the U.S. or Europe doesn't say it in so many words, they wouldn't have minded a change in political guard in Turkey. Now, Erdogan accused the opposition of working with President Biden to defeat him. So I'm wondering what that means or what that says about the state of relations between the U.S. and Turkey. 
Yeah, I think there's a little bit of background to that because before Biden came into office, he did make a statement. Uh, he referred to Erdogan as an autocrat and suggested that the United States should support the opposition in Turkey. And that actually, uh, you know, is is a thread that is very useful in domestic politics. And Erdogan has capitalized on that. He has been referring to that, suggesting that the opposition is working in tandem with foreign forces against him. And that galvanizes his uh, his public support and consolidates his base. And he's done that during this campaign as well. We talked about what's at stake for Turkey, what's at stake for the U.S. What about a loss for Erdogan? What would that mean for NATO? Well, the opposition has put forward a foreign policy agenda that seems uh, to imply that they would reorient Turkey, not forfeiting its relations and the significance of its engagement with countries like Russia or even with China, but making Turkey's position in the Western security architecture more central, implying obviously that Turkey would be acting less as a disruptive force, including within the alliance. Would it be a big shift, you think? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Because despite Erdogan's rhetoric, Turkey has been fulfilling its commitments within the alliance, but on different areas, for example, Sweden's uh, desire to join the alliance, it has been creating a little bit of difficulty for the alliance. So I think there would be a significant shift. The problems that Turkey has with its European allies, even with the U.S., I think would become more manageable. So the relationship would become more predictable and easier to handle, despite many challenges that would probably continue to exist. So if Erdogan stays in power, do you foresee challenges for the West? Yes, because one can expect him to continue this trajectory. You know, Turkey and its Western allies and the United States have settled into a transactional relationship, and that's really not a resilience form of relationship. It's more unpredictable. And I presume that should Erdogan remain in power, that would not change much. Alper Josh Kuhn is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a retired Turkish diplomat. Thanks a lot. A groundbreaking Southern California politician has died. Gloria Molina was a series of firsts, the first Latina elected to serve in the state assembly, the L.A. City Council, and the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. The Brennan Center for Justice shared this video of Molina talking about power. You had to break through that glass ceiling. The guys had a tough time with it. Power is very, very important to anyone who has it. They're not going to share it. You almost have to strip them of it. LA Times columnist Gustavo Arellano says Molina was a pioneer. Not just in Southern California, but across the United States. In the 1970s, she was active in the Chicano movement, which helped shape her political career. Molina advocated for many issues, including environmental justice, health care, and public transit. She was doing these achievements in the 80s and 90s where Latinas across the United States, and women for that matter, were looking for political representation. Molina was also known for being outspoken on issues she cared about. The reason people loved her so much is because they reminded her of their tia, their aunts, their mothers, or even sisters. Just, you know, she was always that tia who said what needed to be said, even though people kind of got annoyed at her sometimes for saying those things. Ariano says Molina fought hard for her constituents in the East L.A. area, especially working class Latinos. I think at the end, what people could learn is, especially people who want to get into positions of power, don't forget where you came from. Gloria never forgot where she came from. And that's why she became as influential a politician as she did. And that's why people are remembering her as fondly as they do. After Molina disclosed earlier this year that she had terminal cancer, L.A. County leaders voted to rename a well-known park that she helped create. The downtown L.A. green space is now known as Gloria Molina Grand Park.
There's a debate over proposed carbon capture pipelines in the Midwest. Pipeline companies say they can help fight climate change. Some farmers and residents are skeptical. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for being with WBUR on this Tuesday morning. Coming up in a couple minutes, allegations against a Boston chef are sparking a bigger conversation about work culture in restaurants. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at MOS.org. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. Mostly sunny and a high near 80 today. Tonight, mostly cloudy and a low around 48. There's a slight chance of showers overnight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a lot cooler with a high temperature only around 60. Right now, it's 63 degrees in Boston at 820. And later this morning at 11, Governor Moore Healy wants people and businesses to come to Massachusetts. She's touting the state's focus on health care and science. We'll ask the governor how that pitch is landing. That's at 11 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The area restaurant community is still reeling in the wake of allegations against Boston chef Barbara Lynch. Investigations published in the New York Times and Boston Globe accused Lynch of creating toxic work environments in her restaurants. 
Lynch denies those allegations. Meanwhile, the claims are raising broader questions about the culture inside restaurants and how it impacts workers and their mental health. WBUR's Andrea Shea tells us more. It's been a tough, emotional year for Tim Deering. He's one of the more than 20 former employees who spoke out about Barbara Lynch. But the hardest part is that Deering lost his best friend and colleague, Rye Crofter. He was named Rye because his parents worked at a bakery. It was always ingrained into his life. Um, And, like, that's how we became really good friends, is through food, like punk rock and food. Deering and Crofter were friends for 22 years. They grew up in kitchens and ultimately worked together at Lynch's high-end restaurant Menton. Crofter was executive chef for her restaurant group, and Deering says they both felt burnt out and frustrated working 12 to 14-hour days. And just, like, the crazy attitudes, the stress. But, like, we were always trying to figure out, like, a way not to have that. Kitchens can be pressure cookers, and Deering, who's 38, says this physically and mentally grueling work culture indoors. He traces it back to elite 20th-century French chefs who ran their kitchens like military brigades. It's very hierarchical. It's very, like, no matter what, you take it. Deering acknowledges he's had his own angry moments and brash responses, but he says he and Crofter wanted to create healthier ways to communicate. They talked about holding regular meetings so cooks could speak openly about operational and interpersonal issues. But they never got to implement that idea because Crofter died of a fentanyl overdose in January. Me and Rye were recovering alcoholics and addicts, and, you know, I've been clean for 11 years. Rye had about eight. It was all a surprise to all of us. And, like, a lot of friends have died from this. Like, a lot of people. The 35-year-old chef's death became a tipping point for Deering and his colleagues to break their silence about Barbara Lynch. They allege she was a neglectful leader who verbally and physically harassed employees for years, which Lynch denies. Now Deering hopes this story serves as a wake-up call for change across the industry. This conversation does not get enough airtime. Hasela Villas is co-founder of Not 9 to 5, a global nonprofit based in Toronto that promotes mental health advocacy in the restaurant and hospitality sector. It's a deep, dark, painful conversation. And also, the longer that we don't have it for, unfortunately, the more these experiences keep happening. Avilis is 42 and has struggled with anxiety, depression, and substance use over her 17 years in the industry. In 2021, her organization surveyed more than 600 restaurant professionals, and about 90% reported similar experiences. We're not investing in people. We're not investing in adequate training. We're not providing people with adequate compensation, adequate breaks. We're not providing psychological safety. I mean, all of these things are not happening. And so that's why we have such high rates of mental health and substance use challenges. To support the industry, Not 9 to 5 created a mental health hospitality coalition and a slew of online resources. There's also a certification program to help employers learn how to foster emotionally safe work environments. But, Avila says, unlearning the past will take time and leadership. 
the employer has a responsibility to create a safe workplace for all workers. So that way goes to the receiving door and the walk-in. The wines are here, dish pit here, freezers, and then bath prep kitchen here. Tracy Chang is chef owner at Pagu, a Spanish-Japanese tapas restaurant in Cambridge. The 35-year-old's kitchen staff is busy chopping vegetables and prepping for dinner service. They chat and smile, but they're also super focused. Chang says she tries to cultivate a positive environment at Pagu. This is probably the strongest team and most tight-knit team I've had in the six years of operation. Chang gives her 30 employees flexible schedules. The restaurant has a shared tip system. She says she tries to provide room for professional growth and just listening. You know, like treat people like you would want to be treated. Do unto others, right? Chang knows how chaotic restaurants can be. She's worked at several, including in Europe, and knew she wanted to do things differently at her own place. For Chang, a big part of that is establishing boundaries. Coming up as a chef, she witnessed toxic behavior, including abuse and harassment, that was often tied to staff drinking together. So Chang made Pagu a dry restaurant. So dry restaurant is for us that the employees and ownership and managers are not drinking at the restaurant before their job, during their job, after their job. But they do play soccer together, Chang says. For her, a healthy, happy staff that feels connected and valued is also good for business. There's less turnover. Some of her employees have stayed on since year one. But to really change restaurant culture, Chang says customers need to care. I think when we decide where we go out to eat, instead of asking, like, oh, is this, like, the most interesting thing I feel like eating tonight, Shouldn't we also ask, what are their ethics? Are people in this restaurant happy? Mm-hmm. They have a positive work culture. There's like a, a good vibe, you know, maybe that's a good place to support. And Chang believes if the staff is treated well, the food will probably taste better too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. This story was co-reported by WBUR's Zanindor and Wemeka. Tonight at City Space, the conversation about combating toxic restaurant culture continues. You can find details about the free event at wbur.org slash events. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, in about five minutes, we get the details on a special counsel's report into the FBI investigation of the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
The debt ceiling will be the focus this afternoon when President Biden sits down with congressional leaders at the White House for the second time in a week. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the signs remain far apart on an agreement to raise the debt limit and prevent a default. That's despite several days of talks at the staff level. NPR's Barbara Sprunt says Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is repeating her warning that Congress needs to take action before June 1st. She sent a letter to all members of congressional leadership yesterday regarding the debt limit. She reiterated that timeline, saying the X date could come as early as June 1st, and went on to say that concerns about a debt default can raise short-term borrowing costs and negatively impact the U.S. credit rating. The nation's debt limit currently tops $31 trillion. Police in New Mexico say a gunman who killed three people and wounded six others yesterday in Farmington appeared to fire randomly at people, cars, and houses. At least six houses and three cars were shot in the course of the event as a suspect randomly fired at whatever entered his head to shoot at. That's Farmington Police Chief Steve Hebby responding officers shot and killed the 18-year-old gunman. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The U.S. Supreme Court is upholding a California law regulating pork products sold in that state, and the ruling could have repercussions here in Massachusetts. Alden Bourne explains. The California law says that pork sold in the state must come from pigs with a certain amount of living space. A Massachusetts law requiring something similar was passed by voters almost seven years ago. It was put on hold pending the court's decision on the constitutionality of the California law. Kara Holmquist is with the Massachusetts SPCA. We're thrilled and relieved, and we are just really glad that so many more animals will be spared the suffering from this type of confinement. A federal judge ruled earlier that those involved in the Massachusetts case should get together within 10 days of the high court's ruling and discuss the path forward. A restaurant trade group that fought the Massachusetts law declined comment. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Federal regulators are placing limits on how many haddock can be caught in the Gulf of Maine. Haddock have long been considered a fishing staple in the region. They're used in classic New England seafood dishes. But regulators say the quotas for the fish need to be cut by around 80 percent to protect the species from collapse. Fishers say the reasoning behind the cuts is flawed. They worry the new regulations will cause them to lose out on revenue. President Joe Biden is tapping a former Boston surgeon to run the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Monica Bertinoli was nominated to be the next director of the organization yesterday. She's led the National Cancer Institute since October. Prior to that, she was a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. The Red Sox couldn't keep up with the Mariners last night. The Sox fell to Seattle at home by nine runs. They'll try again tonight at Fenway. The Celtics play the Heat tomorrow at the Garden in Game 1 of the Eastern Conference Finals. We'll have a mostly sunny day today near 80. Tonight it falls to the upper 40s and there's a chance of showers overnight. Tomorrow low 60s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston at 833. You're with WBOR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Congress has taken a closer look at regulations on artificial intelligence. Yeah, a bipartisan group of House members met last night with Sam Altman, the CEO of the company behind ChatGPT. He'll testify later today for the first time on Capitol Hill. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's crafting what he hopes will be comprehensive AI guardrails to address growing concerns about the emerging technology. I want to do this in a bipartisan way. I don't think this is a political issue. This is a a national issue, a country issue, a human issue. This week, both Senate and House committees will hold several hearings on AI, and lawmakers say there's plenty more to come. NPR's congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins us this morning. All right, this week's hearings, what are they going to be discussing? Right, today we're going to hear from Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, which is the company behind ChatGPT. He'll testify before a Senate Judiciary subpanel in a hearing focused on how Congress could regulate this technology. I was outside the room where he met with members for dinner last night behind closed doors. Lawmakers afterward were saying that he told them that AI is a powerful tool that can make society better globally, grow the economy, and improve lives. And he also warned against going overboard with regulation. So he could touch on those same themes before the Senate panel today. It's led by Connecticut Democrat Richard Blumenthal and Missouri Republican Josh Hawley. I took a Senate train ride with Hawley recently, and he told me he's worried about privacy issues. I do think that we've got to give Americans some basic digital privacy rights, and we've got to stop the tracking and the buying and selling of private information without users' consent. I mean, that's just critical. And now we have AI on top of that. It's a reminder Congress has not even been able to address these privacy issues related to social media. And Holly told me he's also worried about election security, and that's part of a long list of worries. Yeah, but Congress has, what word am I looking Oh, lackluster. Lackluster history when it comes to <laughs> regulating AI. So what are the challenges here? There are many. Congress is playing catch-up. For example, the European Union is years ahead in crafting AI law and then throw in a bitterly divided Congress, and that does not bode well. I talked to law professor Ifoma Ajunwa at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill about this. We have seen gridlocks in Congress, you know, passing so many laws that we would have thought were nonpartisan issues. So I do believe that the White House, which has access to executive orders and the such, may actually be able to move the needle quicker. And we did see the Biden White House recently roll out some AI initiatives, while Congress has historically missed the regulatory windows on emerging tech like the Internet and social media. And Ajunwa said another issue is there's a real lack of joint experience in both law and computer science on Capitol Hill for both members and staff. Yeah, but yet we're seeing this race on Capitol Hill as members try to make a, a legislative mark here, especially as several congressional panels have jurisdiction on AI. 
Yes, today the Senate Homeland Security Committee will also hold a hearing. They're looking at how federal agencies are using AI, and the chair, Michigan Senator Gary Peters, told me it's one of many. He's planning an AI hearing every work period, and tomorrow House Judiciary Subpanel will look at AI and copyright law. And this is as members such as California's Ted Lieu. He filed a resolution earlier this year written by ChatGPT. That's a first for Congress pushing for AI regulation. NPR's Claudia Grisales. Talk again soon. Thank you. Pakistan is still recovering from massive floods that killed more than 1,700 people last year. Shabnam Baluch recalls seeing villages underwater. Some people fled, but those who stayed... They were living on the rooftops of their houses without water, without food. And you could see a lot of animals' bodies everywhere, you know. Baluch is the Pakistan country director for the International Rescue Committee. The organization says the floods caused $40 billion in economic damage. I spoke with her as another monsoon season approaches. Still, there are villages which are underwater. We visited village, uh, villages in district Dadu, which was the one of the hardest hit district. And uh, in some villages, water is, is still standing there. Wait, months later? Yes, months later. Because since the topography is, is like a, it's a plain land, and they, it is very difficult to drain that water because there's nowhere else where the water can go. And people are living in surroundings, which means that they don't have clean water to drink. So imagine, these were the conditions. What are the impacts today that people are still suffering through? Still 1.8 million people are living in this condition. Like, you know, in the, in the surroundings where water is still standing. So 1.8 million people are still there. Even before flood, the health infrastructure was collapsed due to COVID-19. And even before COVID-19, it was like, you know, uh, one doctor for 1,300 people and six bed per hospital for 10,000 people. So after fillered, when the health infrastructure is damaged, there's no alternate to people. Mm. At the moment, the priority is livelihoods, restoring livelihoods. If you could just give me a sense of the amount of loss, loss of life, cost of damage from this flood. Uh, there were 1,700 uh, people uh, who lost their lives. And when it comes to homes, there are over 2 million houses which were lost only in Sindh specifically. And to uh, our greatest fear, there are predictions that this monsoon, which is around the corner, in, in end of May we start the monsoon, there are 70% chances uh, of flood this year as well. And we are in no um, capacity to respond to these floods. What has the Pakistani government been able to do? What has the international community been able to do? Not much, really. But it, when it comes to reconstructing their houses, their water schemes, their infrastructure, it is still, uh, there's no progress uh, at the moment. It will take time, maybe one year or two years. But you're talking about monsoons coming again, again predicted to be higher than average. That's true. What does the country need right now to deal with what might be coming and what it's already been through? Uh, the international community really needs to come forward. Catastrophe of this scale, no single country can uh, face it. Even now, we talk about 10 billion in pledges, 90% is loan money, credit and loan, which cannot help at this stage when Pakistan is already in economic crisis. So I think this is a time when uh, international community come forward. 
and also commit in terms of investing in uh, climate resilient infrastructure and disaster preparedness. This is the area where we have not invested at all. How many people don't have enough to eat in Pakistan right now, especially as a direct result of these floods and increasing prices? Overall, 5 million people are in emergency uh, phase of food crisis situation, which is more or less more or less near to the situation of uh, Somalia, where 5.3 uh, million people are having this situation. Shavna Baloch is the International Rescue Committee's Pakistan director. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for being with WBUR. Coming up at 845, we have a preview of the mayoral election in Philadelphia. Residents there choose between nine candidates in the Democratic primary today. In your forecast, mostly clear skies today and temperatures rise to near 80 degrees, upper 40s tonight, and some clouds move in overnight. There's a chance of showers. Tomorrow, mostly clear skies again, but much cooler with temperatures only around 60. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books. Popping up at the Seaport Summer Market the first three weekends in June from 11 to 7. You can kickstart summer reading with Porter Square Books, Boston Edition. The number of homes being sold in Massachusetts continues to shrink. Data obtained by the Boston Business Journal show less than 3,000 homes sold in the state last month. That's down 25 percent compared to a year ago. Inventory may be low, but prices are mostly flat. The median price for a single-family home is down 1 percent compared to last year. The Boston Celtics' extended playoff run is a shot in the arm for many businesses in the city. Seas fans and Miami Heat fans are expected to flock to Boston as the Celtics make a run for the NBA championship. David O'Donnell is the vice president of strategic communications for Meet Boston. He says the city is ready to welcome opposing fans. The value of a visitor dollar is more impactful than the value of a regional dollar because that dollar, A, would not have been spent in this area unless the event was happening. And B, it's very likely tied to an overnight stay. The Celtics will host the Miami Heat tonight for Game 1 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. The winner of the series moves on to the championship round. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. From the grocery store to the gas pump, most Americans are feeling the effects of inflation. But one particular group of people has been hit incredibly hard, the incarcerated. We do hear that people do go to really desperate measures and drastic measures to be able to eat and have their basic needs met. Inflation in prison commissaries. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. 
Today, voters in Philadelphia will head to the polls to choose a Democratic nominee who will likely be the next mayor of one of the poorest big cities in the U.S. Yeah, and many are watching the mayoral race in the largest city in this swing state for hints as to what appeals to voters as the 2024 presidential election approaches. Independent polling shows four candidates have a real chance at getting the Democratic nomination for mayor, and three of them are women. Tom McDonald of member station WHYY has been covering politics in the city for decades. Uh, Tom, this is uh, just the race for the Democratic nomination. So why is it being seen as pretty much deciding the election for mayor? Because the city of Philadelphia is a Democratic stronghold with voter registration at seven to one. So this really isn't much of a primary. The winner's expected to become the next mayor of Philadelphia. We haven't had a Republican as a mayor since 1952. The final independent poll last weekend put four candidates within striking distance of a win, and three of the four are women. That would be a first for the city, including two former members of Philadelphia City Council, a former council member who has an estimated $400 million personal fortune, and the fourth is a former city controller who is the elected fiscal watchdog of the city. All right, tell us about the candidates in this race. Helen Gim is a former teacher who became an activist and then a city council member. She's been called the front runner by many and has support from both national and local progressives. AOC and Bernie Sanders headlined a rally on Sunday for her, which her campaign estimated about 35,000 potential voters came out for. She also has the support of both the local and national teachers union, which will supply people to bring out the vote. Sherelle Parker is trailing Gim, but only by a few percentage points. She's going with traditional party support along with a campaign organization that she's been part of for decades through state and local office wins. Then there's Rebecca Reinhardt, the former city controller. She left a career on Wall Street to join city government. She's pitching as someone who can get things done and has the support of three former mayors. And Alan Dom was in the group. He's part of the statistical tie for the lead. He spent more than $8 million on his campaign out of his own pocket. So there's no doubt he'll spend even more today to bring out the people that knock on the doors and to help people who need a ride to go to the polling places. Now, whoever wins this election will have an influence in the race for the presidency, helping the city's margin of victory for a Democrat in this swing state where every vote counts as it did in the last election. The eyes of the country were on Philadelphia for several days as the final votes were tallied. What are the main issues in this race? As you mentioned at the top, Philadelphia is one of the poorest big cities in the country, and crime and drugs are the big issues. Some neighborhoods have deteriorated so badly the candidates have taken aim at the outgoing Mayor Jim Kenney, saying he's just not doing his job to fix the city's ills, something he refutes. One area of note is a drug-infested intersection known as K&A or Kensington and Allegheny. It's been the symbol of the fight against drugs and the city's failing war on drugs, and all the candidates have said they'll clean it up in one way or another. But the big problem is how to fix the problems the city has, and the candidates all have different ideas on how they would deal with the city's issues. The city's also having problems hiring police officers. After the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Democratic-majority cities across the country were focused on efforts to defund the police, and Philadelphia was sort of one of them. There are about 1,000 officers down and can't keep up with attrition in the city, and there's about 800 correction officers down, which resulted in the first escape in decades after guards found two men, including one of four murders. That's Tom McDonald of member station WHYY. Appreciate you speaking with us. Thank you. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, new data show that American household debt has surpassed $17 trillion for the first time. The Marketplace Morning Report looks at the implications. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Police in New Mexico are investigating shootings that killed three people and injured six others, including two police officers. Talks between the White House and congressional leaders are set to resume as the nation's debt ceiling deadline approaches. And in Massachusetts, a red flag warning is now in effect for much of the state as dry, windy weather creates ideal wildfire conditions. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Near 80 and mostly sunny today, upper 40s tonight, and it grows mostly cloudy with a chance of showers overnight. Tomorrow, temperatures dip to around 60, and it'll be mostly sunny. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston at 851. ChatGPT goes to Washington. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Generative artificial intelligence has gripped the world's imagination with its potential to disrupt our economy and way of life. The Senate is tackling that today. In a hearing, among those testifying is Sam Altman, chief executive of OpenAI. That's the company behind ChatGPT. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. This is not Sam Altman's first visit to Washington, but it is his first at a congressional hearing where senators say their initial goal is to understand generative AI technology and what safeguards Congress may need to enact. Altman has said there is surprising agreement among tech companies that some regulation and common rules of the road are necessary. But that's where consensus ends. Lawmakers and industry representatives are divided over what regulation should look like. Should it broadly apply to all AI tools or be narrowly focused on certain use cases, such as medical applications? Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is working on a plan that would in part require independent experts to test new AI tools before they are released to the public. There is a sense of urgency in Washington to respond to the rapid adoption and increasing sophistication of this new technology. Earlier this month, the White House held a meeting with Altman and other tech leaders involved in AI and urged them to be transparent about what they're doing. I'm Nova Safa for Marketplace. 
If you add up everything that all of us consumers in this country owe, you will get a grand total of more than $17 trillion. That is almost as much as the U.S.'s entire gross domestic product, which is $23 trillion. In just the first three months of this year, consumer debt rose by $150 billion. Marketplace's Samantha Fields uh, reports. Inflation is increasingly taking a toll on household finances, some more than others, says Joanne Feeney at Advisors Capital Management. Consumers, particularly in the middle and lower income, are facing stresses and they're having to tap their credit cards to make their way through their lives. Credit card balances usually fall in the first three months of the year. People run them up during the fourth quarter with all this holiday shopping, and then in the first quarter, people make these New Year's resolutions to pay down debt. But this year, Ted Rossman at Bankrate says credit card balances stayed flat. And that is a bit of a warning sign. So is the fact that more people are falling behind on their credit card and car loan payments and their mortgages. We see more people in debt. We see people carrying debt for longer, financing more day-to-day essentials. All of this in the context of the lowest unemployment rate in 54 years. That has him worried about what will happen if the labor market weakens and the unemployment rate starts to rise. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is about flat. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down in the 1 to 3 tenths percent range, with the Dow future down 100 points. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, helping investors navigate the relationship economy with the CRM built for private capital markets. Affinity.co slash marketplace. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at UiPath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. There is a major change to Medicare that Congress is considering in at least four different bills. It involves paying hospitals less for certain services. Right now, hospitals and independent clinics can do some of the same things, x-rays, checkups, but hospitals get paid more to do them. Paying hospitals the same rate that clinics are paid, it's called site-neutral payment, could save the government as much as $150 billion over a decade. Joining us to talk about this is Dan Gorenstein. He's the executive editor of Tradeoffs, a health policy news organization. He's also a former Marketplace reporter. Hi, Dan. Hey, Sabrine. Nice to be here. Thanks so much. Okay, so boil this down. What is the ultimate problem that the government is trying to fix here? So right now, Sabri, Medicare, the major federal insurance program for seniors, pays hospitals more than double on average what they pay independent doctors to deliver the exact same care. Medicare is currently overpaying in a way that they don't have to be. That's Hannah Nieprash from the University of Minnesota. One example Hannah gave is a common shot people get to numb pain. Medicare shells out 255 bucks if a community doc does it, but 740 if a hospital doc does it. And patients pay more, too, because they're often on the hook for 20% of Medicare bills. So can you lay out how exactly Congress is thinking about changing that or fixing that? Basically, they want to shut that gap. The boldest proposal out there could save the feds about $150 billion over the next decade or so. Well, then hospitals stand to lose billions. They're obviously opposed to this change. But what's their argument for why it's a bad idea? Here's how Ashley Thompson from the American Hospital Association put it to me. There is nothing 
neutral about site neutral payments. A cut to hospitals means that they're going to have to scale back on services and offerings in the community. Hospitals say they deserve the pay bump, Sabri, that the patients they see are sicker on average. Everyone we spoke to agreed hospitals should get more money when they do complex stuff. But the services targeted here, Spree, are pretty simple things. An x-ray, a round of chemotherapy, a checkup for that bum knee. Services that a lot of experts argue clinics can do just as safely and effectively as a facility owned by a hospital. You talk about this in your podcast and you make the point that this policy change has actually even bigger economic implications than just, you know, how much money goes to hospitals. Can you explain those? A lot of economists believe this pay gap has contributed to the growing problem of market consolidation. And think about it. If one day a clinic makes 250 bucks for a shot and with a few tweaks, a hospital can convert that clinic into an outpatient facility and start billing three times more. That's a pretty appetizing investment. The number of hospital-owned physician practices, Sabri, has more than doubled over the last decade. And all that doc gobbling research shows hurts competition and hikes prices. Dan Gorenstein is executive editor of Tradeoffs. Dan, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Our producers are James Graham, Ollie Dalbertansen, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen Morby. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Thanks for being with Morning Edition this morning on WBUR. It'll be near 80 today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight, upper 40s, and we may see some rain overnight tomorrow, only in the low 60s, but mostly sunny. It's 65 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Nuance is committed to helping physicians restore their work-life balance with DAX, an AI-powered solution that automates clinical documentation. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.